on today's episode of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast, we'll be talking about the Patriots' upcoming matchup with the Cleveland Browns on Sunday. We'll talk about the Patriots getting into a bit of a rhythm this season with three straight wins. Uh, we will also talk about Thursday Night Football, uh, recap last night's game between the Dolphins and the Ravens. We'll also take a look at the rest of Week 9 in the NFL as we are about at the halfway point of the NFL season. Uh, we will also take a look at the standings at kind of the halfway point of the season and some news and notes from around the NFL as there are plenty this week. We will also get into talking about the Celtics. They seem to have found a bit of a defensive identity recently. I uh, will also talk about the play of Dennis Schroeder recently and how that's been a help to the Celtics offense. We will also get into some thoughts uh, as we look at the rest of the Celtics schedule for the next few weeks. It's going to start to get pretty busy. Celtics and Bucks play tonight, so we'll take a look at that game. We'll take a look at some news and notes from around the NBA as well. Uh, then we will get into the Bruins, talk about what's going on with them. They're 6-5. and five. There's some concerns that are uh, rearing their ugly head at the moment, so we'll get into that. Uh, talk about last night's game against Edmonton. I will also get into taking a look at Bruins' schedule as, believe it or not, they're going to play games at a uh, pretty high rate in the next couple of weeks, so we'll take a look at that. We will also take a look at some uh, notes from around the NHL as well. Um, and then we will get into a little bit talking about the Red Sox, talk about the significance of J.D. Martinez opting in to the final year of his contract. We'll talk about what that means. We'll talk about Eduardo Rodriguez, who's getting some interest from some teams. We'll take a look at whether the Red Sox can bring him back. Um, and then we'll also talk about uh, remembering Jerry Remy, who uh, sadly passed away a couple, about two weeks ago. So we'll talk about talk about him for a little bit, and then we will get into some News and notes from around Major League Baseball's free agency is uh, come, getting closer. Uh, then we will get into talking about uh, the Revolution. They wrapped up their regular season, winning the Supporters' Shield. So we'll talk about uh, what to expect for the Revolution going into the playoffs. We will also take a look at college football, take a look at the uh, playoff rankings that were out on Tuesday. Uh, so we will also take a look at some key games this weekend. We will also talk about the U.S. men's qualifying, the take on Mexico tonight. Pretty important game for World Cup qualifying. And then we will also take a look at college basketball as it has uh, tipped off, believe it or not. So let's go. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. You can give us a uh, rating on Apple Podcasts. You can 
uh, follow on both of those, write a re uh, leave a review. Really appreciate that. Um, but uh, we're back. Uh, it's kind of weird last few weeks for me. Uh, I've had some, you know, stuff going on. But um, glad to be back with you guys this week. Uh, plenty to talk about. You know, there's always plenty to talk. Plenty to talk about at this time of year. NFL, NHL, NBA. You know, all that stuff lying around. Um, you know, there's plenty of baseball stuff to talk about too, with the Red Sox and free agency. Who might be back? Who might not be back? All of those things. So we got plenty. Uh, to talk about. As a reminder, you can uh, follow our Twitter page at NotBoston on Twitter, um, and you can also follow the uh, Facebook page too. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to get into uh, today's episode talking uh, about the Patriots uh, first. We'll move to uh, Celtics and Bruins in a little bit, but um, it's plenty, it's, it's a plenty, it's, uh, plenty of good stuff for the Patriots over the last few weeks. Um, you know, I would say that, uh, for the first time this season, it seems like, you know, they're playing with momentum. They're playing with, you know, they're, they're playing at a good, at a good rate that they are, you know, winning games. They're finding different ways to win, um, which I think is always a good, a sign of a good team is that you can find different ways to win and, you know, you just find ways to win. And I think, you know, what you've seen, specifically over the last two weeks, is the Patriots maybe not necessarily playing their best offensive games. You know, Mac Jones certainly is not lighting it up. You know, I think that he had a really tough game in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago. You know, was a little bit better against Carolina, but, you know, I really think defense has been the story of the last two wins for the Patriots that really getting after the quarterback, causing turnovers, you know, making big time plays, getting off the field on third downs, you know, things like that. I think it's just great to see that you are seeing some improvements, I think, on the defense. I think that at certain points this year, you kind of were concerned about the amount of points and yards the Patriots were giving up to um, a couple of elite offenses, I think specifically against Dallas, you know, in a game where they were able to kind of move the ball very easily, you know, and I think that it's, it's not necessarily surprising. I think that they struggled against a, an offense like that, you know, that can beat you multiple different ways, but I think that the Patriots have done a great job of building off of that game defensively. You know, offensively, they're not, they're not, you know, scoring a lot of points or, you know, not making a lot of, like, not sure what I'm trying to say, but the offense has not been perfect over the last few games. And I think there were some people, including myself, that were hoping that they would build off of that game against the Jets, you know, but I think that the offense has done enough for you to win games. You know, I think that Mac Jones, while didn't play great against Los Angeles, made a lot of great throws, especially late in that game, that allowed the Patriots to, you know, have a chance to win and ultimately win. You know, I think that made plenty of, I think, solid plays in that game against Carolina. You know, I really think the running game was kind of the story of that game and the defense. But at the end of the day, you know, he's a quarterback that gives you a chance to win every time you go out and play. Now, as he, you know, put together 
a consistent string of great performances? You know, maybe not, but I think that it's clear that you have a quarterback that can help you win games. And the Patriots have been able to put things together in their last three games. Now, I think that you've not seen a game yet this season where they've had all three phases perform to the level that, you know, it leads to kind of a dominating win. I mean, you kind of saw that against the Jets, but I think that, you know, if you're a Patriots fan, you want to see them perform better against a team that's uh, a solid team, a team like the Cleveland Browns, you know, as we talk about this week's game. You know, I think that this is a huge opportunity for the Patriots to prove to the rest of the NFL that, you know, we're back and we are a team that, you know, you should not take lightly. Um, It's going to be an interesting game because I think that there are going to be plenty of key contributors, key contributors on both sides that may not play. Uh, The Browns are not sure if Miles Garrett will play. Um, Obviously, Nick Chubb and I think one of the running, one of the other running backs had tested positive. So there's a chance that he might not play. And whoever the backup is, I can't remember. Um, it's not Dearness Johnson. I think he's the he's the healthy running back that is available. Um, I think it's Felton that is the other running back that is that had tested positive. So there's a chance Cleveland's without you know two of their top running backs. There's a chance that they're without Miles Garrett there's a very good chance the Patriots are also going to be without their top two running backs um, as uh, Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson both had, both suffered uh, concussions late in that Carolina game. So there's a possibility that both teams could be very shorthanded in terms of running backs, which I think is definitely going to change the way the game is going to be played. Because I think thinking about whether or thinking if those guys were healthy, you would see a game where the teams would be running the ball down each other's throats and really seeing kind of a a throwback, you know, 17 to 13 type game where you just rely on your running game. Um, you very well could see a similar game like that on Sunday because both defenses, I think, are playing at a really good rate right now, a really good clip right now. Um, you know, Cleveland's defensive line, um, I have to tell you, uh, was a little concerning what the Patriots offensive line looked like on Sunday against Carolina, you know, they were in the backfield a pretty good amount. Um, So I think that offensive line obviously needs to be way more consistent against a team like Cleveland and a team that is, I think, a lot more talented than Carolina is. So I think the offensive line needs to be absolutely, you know, at their best and keep Mac Jones upright. Um, You know, I'm very curious if the running backs or if, if the running backs that I mentioned are not available. You know, how does this game change? Do the Patriots look to move the ball down the field more? What do they try to improve upon? Because, you know, clearly if your two healthy running backs are going to be Brandon Bolden and J.J. Taylor, you really kind of can't play that smash mouth brand of football where you just kind of run it up the gut. Um, the Patriots are going to have to get creative, as is Cleveland you know, assuming that Chubb and Felton are not going to be available to play. Um, So it's going to make for a very interesting game against Cleveland. Um, But I think that the Patriots are playing really well right now. You know, they've found ways to win their last three games, and I think are starting to play well at the right time. You know, I think that you want to start playing your best at this point, and the Patriots 
you know, historically have done that. They've been able to, you know, in a way, treat the early early weeks of the season as kind of an extended preseason, see what you have, see what combinations work for the offensive line, defensive line, what have you. And then by, you know, midseason, they start to kind of figure things out. And the Patriots obviously have had some great performances by certain players on the offense and on the defense. You know, you look at a guy like Matt Judon, who's been the Patriots team MVP to this point, in my opinion. You know, I think clearly he continues on this run. He could absolutely be a player that challenges to win defensive player of the year. Um, I don't think that that's a crazy thing to say, just based on the way that he is playing, put, I think, nine and a half sacks through nine games, which is, you know, you put that on, you put that on like an average, it's about a sack a game. So I think this game this weekend is probably going to be another kind of a low-scoring game where I think it's going to really, the turnovers are really going to be the difference in this game. But I think, can the Patriots force Baker Mayfield into some bad decisions? You know, what do the Browns try to do, whether Miles Garrett plays or not? You know, I think that Obviously, both teams most likely are going to be shorthanded on offense. So to be curious to see, you know, how the offenses try to um, adjust with, you know, the running backs not being available. I think for the Patriots, you got to try to confuse Baker Mayfield, try to throw some different coverages, some different looks at him, um, because I think that he's a quarterback that, you know, if he's not playing well, he like plays very poorly. But if you let him get into a rhythm, you know, he's going to have a good day. So the Patriots, I think, really have to be careful and really have to, you know, do their best to try to mix different, you know, blitzes, coverages for receivers, things like that. Um, but I think it's going to be, you know, a, a, a low scoring kind of a, defensive slugfest type of game. I really wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the two teams combined don't score more than like 40 points. I really wouldn't be surprised if it's like 20 to 13, 21 to 12, something like that. I really wouldn't be surprised if we see a game like that. Um, So I think, you know, really it's turnovers. Can you get key stops on third down? Can you get off the field? And that's what the Patriots have been able to do the last couple of games. So, you know, I think it's going to be a good good test for this team to play a team like Cleveland that I think is in a similar spot that they are, you know, vying for a playoff spot. And I think that this game, you know, could end up having some pretty big playoff implications. You know, if the Patriots and Browns end up tied, you know, this game could have, you know, tiebreaker implications that a team that wins this game has the tiebreaker and makes the playoffs. So, you know, this is going to be a pretty big game. I mean, I think to this point, it's going to be the most important game on the Patriots' schedule um, at the moment. You know, you have a team like Tennessee coming in in a few weeks, and I think that, you know, you want to try to pile up the wins as best you can. It also is worth noting that the Patriots play on Thursday night next week. And so I think, you know, it's going to be a challenge. Not going to say that, oh, you know, you're definitely going to lose that game. But, I mean, it is two games in four days, four or five days, whatever it is. And so, you know, I think you want to try to do your damnedest to try to win this game on Sunday so that, you know, if you have a short week, 
you know, not that it's okay to lose a game, but I think, like, you want to try to put in your best effort to win this game on Sunday because I think this game means way more to the team in terms of playoff implications and seedings and things like that. Um, so I'm very curious to see how the Patriots, um, you know, approach this game, you know, and I think that also considering that they play Thursday, the Patriots probably would prefer that Stevenson and Harris, you know, don't play if they, you know, absolutely, you know, or not, not push them to play on Sunday, you know, and I think try to not push them so that you can have them available to play on Thursday. Um, and, you know, I think create kind of a, if you don't have them play Sunday, they can play Thursday and kind of maybe help out your offense or your defense, you know, that's going to be tired after playing on Sunday and then playing Thursday night against the Falcons. So uh, very curious to see how the Patriots approach um, this game this week, but I think it's going to be a rough and tumble type game. So uh, hopefully the Patriots are prepared, but I do like the Patriots in this game. I do, you know, I think that playing at home is is kind of a huge kind of playoff atmosphere type game that, hey, the second half of the season has started. The Patriots have done pretty well in the first half, especially recently. But I think that at a certain point, you kind of have to not hit the reset button, but be like, okay, this is kind of where the real important games start. And you really kind of have to bring it every week. So um, I do like the Patriots in a low-scoring game, but turnover is going to be key. The Patriots' offensive line, I think, is going to be the biggest factor in this game. If they can keep Mac Jones upright, you know, and not let the Browns force Mac Jones into some, you know, mistakes, then I think the Patriots will be fine. But I think they got to control the turnover battle and the offensive line's got to play well. So I'll see how that shakes out Sunday afternoon at Gillette, 1 o'clock on CBS. So we will take a look at the rest of the NFL, beginning with uh, Thursday Night Football last night. Baltimore uh, traveled to Miami and had a pretty tough time. Uh, the Dolphins come away with a 22-10 win in which their defense was outstanding. Tua Tagovailoa came into the game in the second half and kind of helped the Dolphins to their second home win of the season, their third win of the season. So they improved to 3-7. and seven. They won two straight after uh, a 1-7 start. The Ravens uh, dropping to 6-3 and three with the road loss. Lamar Jackson, I think, just was just okay in this game. You know, I think the Dolphins did a fantastic job with the front seven, creating a lot of pressure. Uh, Jackson was only 26 of 43 for 238 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. Uh, was sacked four times, and the Dolphins did have a, a fumble recovery return for a touchdown. So a uh, big defensive game. Tua had a couple nice throws in the second half. A couple big plays by Albert Wilson and Isaiah Ford on some deep catches in the game. Uh, Jalen Waddell also had a couple nice grabs. Uh, so the Dolphins were able to get the win. You know, honestly, I was kind of surprised. I really thought the Ravens would be um, winning this game rather easily. But, you know, maybe it's the traveling to Miami. The Patriots, you know, know that firsthand. The traveling down there to play is not always easy. Um, but credit to the Dolphins. They really played an outstanding defensive game. Uh, got to Jackson four times. I mean... You've seen what Lamar Jackson can do with his feet, so getting him on the ground four times, I think, is a is a miracle that they were able to 
uh, force a couple fumbles, and um, obviously return one for a touchdown. So a big defensive game for the Dolphins. They improved to three and seven. Uh, Ravens fall to six and three, and this could be a could end up being a pretty ugly loss on the Ravens right now. You know, in terms of uh, playoff seeding and whether they win the division or not, this could end up being a loss that uh, could be huge. Um, so looking at the rest of the week. As we take a look at the 1 o'clock games, obviously the Patriots and the Browns will kind of be the, the highlight of the 1 o'clock games. Atlanta at 4-4 four and four travels to Dallas, so the Patriots' next opponent is Atlanta on Thursday. So that will be an interesting matchup for the Patriots, obviously. We'll talk about that game next week, um, but it will be interesting to see how Atlanta does against a Dallas team that really struggled offensively last week against Denver. So I would expect that... Uh, Dallas comes back with a vengeance in this game, so um, I like I like Dallas at home. I think that they get the win, but the Falcons have won a couple games on some late field goals, and they are kind of putting themselves in playoff position or the playoff conversation, which is kind of interesting for a team that I think going into the season didn't really have a lot of expectations, but you know here they are at four and four, kind of in the thick of things in the NFC. The Jaguars will travel to Indianapolis to play the Colts. The Jags are coming off probably the biggest upset of the year as they took down the Bills last week, 9-6. to Their defense was outstanding. And they get to play a Colts team that was off last Sunday. They played the Thursday night game last week against the Jets and performed very well on offense. But I think, you know, Jacksonville coming off that win, um, playing very good defensively, this could end up being... A bit of a challenge for the Colts, who did score 45 points last game. Um, but I think Jacksonville will be playing better defensively. I do like the Colts to win the game. But I do think that it's going to be a solid a solid game that ends up... Might might be close at a certain point. I'd be curious to see how um, Trevor Lawrence plays in this game. Obviously, didn't play great against Buffalo, but got the win. Um, so, next on the schedule, we got Buffalo coming off that loss to the Jaguars. Uh, traveling to uh, New Jersey to play the Jets. So Buffalo 5-3, and three, just a half game ahead of the Patriots, if you can believe that. And then you have the Jets at 2-6, and six, who um, came off that loss against the Colts, but they do seem to be playing better offensively with Mike White, which is kind of crazy that, you know, here's Zach Wilson, the the rookie quarterback that a lot of people are excited about. And it's uh, Mike White, the backup quarterback, that's kind of stealing the spotlight for the Jets. So I'd be curious to see how the Jets play at home against a very good team in Buffalo, who definitely is going to be uh, trying to make up for that loss against Jacksonville last week. Uh, Detroit takes their winless record to Pittsburgh to play the Steelers. Steelers coming off a pretty wild win against the Chicago Bears on Monday Night Football. Um, Steelers definitely got pretty lucky in this game with uh, some taunting calls that went in their favor, which I'll just, you know, talk about taunting because it's totally getting out of hand in the NFL. It's just like, I understand to a point what they're trying to prevent. And I think that it's it's fair to address that because, yeah, you do want to limit guys showing up other guys. And I think that it's fair. You know, it's it's the right intention, but it's getting out of hand. 
you know, you're having officials throwing flags at guys who legitimately are not showing up other guys. And it's just like, it's just ridiculous. You know, there are penalties like that that are getting in the way of games. It may have cost the Bears a win. It may have cost the Bears a win on Monday night. And it's just like, you know, you get, I get what they're trying to do, but it's really just unnecessary. And it's unnecessary that it's, that it's been a focus that like, oh, they need to call it more because it's like, I'm sorry. At the same time, you know, they are grown men playing a grown men game. And it's just like, I just, at a certain point, it's not taunting. You know, I get what they're trying to do. And there are times where it's legitimate to throw the flag, you know, if a guy is standing over another player and it's obvious, but it's like, if, 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 if a player is, you know, looking at the sideline and the official thinks that he's showing up the punter on the field. It's just like, it's, it's getting out of hand. It's getting to a point where they're calling everything and it's going to, you know, cost teams games. It already, it probably already did. And it's just like, I don't want to see this cause a team to lose a playoff game because of some penalty that, you know, the referee deems is, is unsportsmanlike and it's just not. So, um, the league just needs to figure things out. And I just think it's just a joke at the end of the day. It really is like, yeah. So that's just kind of my thoughts on it. So the Steelers will play the Lions one o'clock game on Fox. So I would expect the Steelers probably continue the uh, winless streak of the uh, Detroit Lions, but who knows? I mean, we saw pretty crazy upset last week, so you could see something different. The Saints will travel to Tennessee. The Titans with a very impressive win on Sunday Night Football against the Rams last week um, in a game that, you know, their first game without Derrick Henry. Adrian Peterson obviously was essentially signed off the street by the Titans, but they got the job done against the Rams with some great defense. So I would expect that that continues this week against a Saints team that is kind of struggling to find their identity with Jameis Winston out for the season. Um, so I would expect that the Titans keep it going. The Titans are coming to Gillette Stadium in a few weeks. So uh, that's going to definitely be a challenge of game for the Patriots. Uh, Tampa Bay and Washington will go at it at 1 o'clock. Fully expect Tampa Bay to uh, get this win. I don't really expect much from Washington. Um, but they could make it interesting if the um, if they're able to force some turnovers. Now, in the uh, later Sunday window at four o'clock, if Carolina at four and five traveling to Arizona, Cam Newton obviously signed by the Panthers. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, will not play on Sunday as they will travel to Arizona. Cardinals are eight and one. Got the win last week thanks to Colt McCoy, the backup, as Kyler Murray did not play. Um, so the Cardinals were able to get the win. So be curious to see if uh, Murray and DeAndre Hopkins are back in the lineup for this game. And Minnesota travels to Los Angeles to play the Chargers. That will kind of be an interesting game. I think the Chargers, you know, coming off that loss to the Patriots, bounce back. Um, and then you have Minnesota, who, you know, always plays teams tough. So I'll be very curious to see how the Chargers uh, respond to that. That game is at 4.05, and then the 4.25 games on CBS. You have Philadelphia traveling to Denver. 
And then you have Seattle traveling to Green Bay. So Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers might be back and available for this game. So uh, definitely keep an eye on that game if both guys do return to play. Um, and then the Sunday night game, you have Kansas City against Las Vegas. That's going to be a fun game to watch. You know, a lot of people were thinking that Kansas City was going to bounce back with that game against the Giants and then against the Packers. But, you know, the, the offensive issues still continue with this team. Only 13 points scored last week. So um, it's a it's going to be a curious game because I think Kansas City playing against a division opponent, you know, might motivate them. But you have Las Vegas, who's despite, you know, all the despite all the off-field stuff that's going on there, they've been able to kind of maintain their composure and win some games. So I'm very curious to see how this game shakes out. Uh, this game is in Vegas, but I kind of am thinking Kansas City is going to get um, a win in this game and come back and kind of prove to the rest of the NFL that they're not they're not dead this season. Um, and then the Monday night game, you have the Rams against the 49ers. I think the Rams are due for a bounce-back game after the loss to Tennessee. So I think that they get the win uh, in this game. So we'll take a quick look at what the standings look like at the halfway point of the season as we're to week nine or week 10. Well, okay. No, it is week 10. I thought it was week nine for some reason. No, it is week 10 um, this NFL season. So we are at the kind of the halfway point. So the Bills obviously a half game ahead of the Patriots in the AFC East Baltimore, despite the loss. Yesterday is still in first place, but obviously with the win, the Steelers could end up uh, tying for the division lead. And then you have Cleveland and Cincinnati back at five and four. Um, so that division will be very interesting. Very, You could absolutely see that division getting three teams into the playoffs. And with the AFC South, the Titans are running away with things at seven and two with five straight wins. And then in the AFC West, you have the Chargers and the Raiders both at five and three, and then Kansas City and Denver at five and four. That division actually is looking pretty pretty good this year as well. So you could see multiple teams from that division get into the playoffs. In the NFC East, the Cowboys are running away with things at six and two. The Eagles and Giants in second place at three and six, and so not much changing there. And then in the North, Green Bay way ahead of Minnesota and Chicago. And then uh, Tampa Bay with just a one-game one lead over the Saints, two games over the Falcons. And then in the NFC West, you got the Cardinals at 8-1, and one, and then the Rams at 7-2. and two. We take a quick look at what the playoff standings look like. Um, at the moment, the Patriots would have that final playoff spot. Uh, Tennessee would be the number one seed, followed by Baltimore, Los Angeles, Buffalo, the Raiders, and then the Steelers. So you would have two teams from the, actually would have two teams from the AFC East, two teams from the West, and two teams from the North. And the NFC, obviously, Arizona on top with the best record in the NFL, 8-1, and one, followed by Green Bay, Tampa Bay, Dallas. Those would be the division winners, and then the wildcard teams would be the Rams, the Saints, and the Falcons who are, you know, firmly in a playoff spot at the moment. So that's kind of um, interesting there. So as we take a look at some notes from around the NFL, obviously the uh, two big ones yesterday, the Panthers uh, bringing back Cam Newton after 
the news that Sam Darnold would miss a number of weeks with a uh, some kind of shoulder injury, like an incomplete shoulder fracture, something like that. But anyway, you know, it's interesting that Carolina is bringing Cam Newton back. You know, I think that if there was any team that would likely bring him back, if they had a quarterback situation, would be Carolina. You know, I do kind of think it is a coincidence that Carolina, you know, would look to Cam Newton. You know, I think it's more of a coincidence that I think if it was a different team, they probably would look at Cam Newton. But, you know, it might be because Carolina does have experience with Cam and they might be like, okay, we know his skill set. We know what he brings to the offense. We could bring him back. Um, You know, obviously they can't expect that he's going to be an MVP player. Um, And I said the same thing when the Patriots brought him in, that you can't really expect that he's going to be, you know, that MVP type of player. It is interesting because they are kind of in a playoff chase, and I think that bringing in a guy like Cam Newton might make sense because he does understand the offense. He does understand how to work with some of those offensive players over there like DJ Moore and McCaffrey. Um, So I think it could be a positive for them, but I think there's the other side of the coin when you look at, you know, what he did, what how he played with the Patriots last year, you know, really kind of struggled. Um, but I do think that despite a lot of people, you know, saying all these things about, oh, how Cam sucked last year, I do think you kind of got to give him a little bit of slack just based on what last season looked like for the NFL and what it looked like for the Patriots. Um, but I think credit to him, he stayed ready and, has gotten an opportunity. I mean, it's pretty hard to not feel somewhat good for the guy that he's gotten an opportunity um, to return to the NFL. You know, I didn't think that he was going to be out of the league. I figured that one team, some team was going to give him, you know, a chance to come back. So, you know, it's interesting that it is Carolina, his old team. So I'd be curious to see how he performs. Obviously, will not be playing on Sunday in Arizona, but most certainly I think it is the plan that he will start once he is available to play. And then yesterday, you also got some big news. Odell Beckham um, obviously passed through waivers earlier this week and was a free agent, ended up choosing the Rams late yesterday. So he will join a Rams offense that is uh, pretty elite at the moment, although they didn't play well in their last game. But, you know, obviously adding Odell Beckham does add a does add another element to their offense. I will say, though, to the people that are, you know, freaking out and putting the Rams in the Super Bowl. I mean, I do have the Rams winning the Super Bowl this year, but it's not, it doesn't, you know, really change to me with Odell Beckham. You know, I think that some people are thinking that, oh, he's going to put the offense over the top, but like, they're still, you know, they're still an elite offense. Like, I just think that despite all the ability that he has, we've not really seen the elite Odell Beckham in a couple of years. And I just think that, well, yes, he is an improvement over many wide receivers in the NFL. You know, it's just, I don't really know if he's like even a top 20, top 25 receiver in the NFL right now. You know, certainly has the talent, but he's had a lot of injuries over the last few years. And I just think it's hard to expect that he's going to be the superstar, you know, OBJ that he was with the Giants or his first year in Cleveland. It's very difficult to expect that, I think. And I think that that was part of the reason why I was trying to be, you know, even keeled with the Patriots trying to bring him in. And I do understand why they 
perhaps wanted to. You know, I think it made sense because I think it made sense to bring in another talented receiver that can possibly, you know, take some pressure off some of the other receivers. Um, if the Patriots did bring him in, I wouldn't be too upset. You know, I think he would have been a solid addition. But again, he's not a needle mover anymore. You know, and I think, I just think that, you know, certainly he's a good addition to whatever team he was going to go to. But I just think the idea that he's going to kind of put the Rams over the top, I just think is is nonsense. It's really just not really, it, it doesn't really change things for the Rams. You know, certainly it adds another receiver, but it's just like, I don't know. It's like the the things that people were saying that, oh, they're, they're a super team now. And it's like, really? Like, Odell Beckham, like, have you seen him play the last couple of years? You know, and look, you can say whatever you want about him not getting touches or Baker Mayfield's a, a terrible quarterback, whatever you want to say. But I don't know what makes you believe that he's an elite receiver anymore. So, you know, it's it's a good addition for the Rams. Be curious to see, you know, what that offense looks like, the catches, the, you know, targets that he'll get. But um, I think in his mind, he probably goes to a place that he thinks gives him the best chance to win. Now, yeah, you know, he probably could have gone to a place like Tampa Bay um, to maybe give him the very best chance to win. But, hey, it goes to the Rams, one of the best teams in football. You know, I think it's going to be um, a good addition for the Rams. So be curious to see how they do this week. Um, Monday Night Football, uh, Von Miller, I would imagine, would play after getting acquired at the trade deadline. Odell Beckham, you know, not sure if he plays this weekend. I guess I'd be surprised. Uh, Russell Wilson will return, or is uh, questionable to return on Sunday, although it seems like he probably will, as he says that he's close to 100% after the injury. So, I think we will move on from the NFL. We really spent a lot of time there, but hey, there was a lot to talk about. Uh, we'll talk about the Celtics and take a look at how they've been doing. Obviously, they had a three-game losing streak that came to a head with the um, uh, blowing that big lead against the Bulls last Monday night, I think. So it wasn't this past Monday, it was the Monday before, um, blowing that big lead to the Bulls. Um, and really kind of everything seemed to be kind of falling apart at the seams. But the Celtics have rebounded, uh, in my opinion. Won three of their last four, you know, and have played really well defensively, I think, in all four games. Celtics obviously losing that game to the Mavericks on the buzzer beater by Doncic, but I think the Celtics have turned a corner defensively and I think are really trying to are really trying their hardest to kind of make this their identity, a team that's going to play hard defensively for all 48 minutes and, you know, is going to do enough offensively. Um, but I think that really what the Mayoka and what the Celtics as an organization want to kind of put their stamp on is being a good defensive team. And you've kind of seen shades of that the last couple of games. You know, certainly they have not played the best opponents, but, you know, the Celtics did go into Miami last week and put together a really good defensive performance, holding that team to 78 points. Played an excellent game on Wednesday against the Raptors. 104-88 was the final. Um, and honestly, there were, 
I think some concerns that it was going to end up being like the Chicago game because the Celtics built a big lead, but they were able to kind of bounce back once Toronto got back into the game. Um, and I just think it's it's so interesting with this team that it just seems like they have the potential to play great defense every single night. You know, you have the potential with guys like Marcus Smart um, and Robert Williams and Jason Tatum, who honestly is a pretty underrated defender, but oftentimes it's like the effort. It's the two guys want to play hard defensively every single night. And I think that you were seeing some improvements in that area that you're seeing guys getting back, guys being aggressive with active hands, you know, and I think that guys like Dennis Schroeder and Josh Richardson have kind of found a rhythm and found kind of a, a spot in this on this Celtics roster and has given the team some great defense. You know, Richardson's one of those guys that never gives up on a play and it's rubbing off on other guys. You know, Romeo Langford had an unbelievable chase down block the other uh, on Wednesday night. And so I think it's the good defense that rubs off on other guys. And so I think the Celtics are kind of finding the formula of great defense, solid shot making and offense, and, you know, just getting the ball to Rob Williams. He had a, a couple of dunks the other night, a couple lobs. So I think that for the Celtics to be successful, it's just kind of getting back to fundamentals, getting back to kind of doing the simple things, competing, playing hard on defense and, you know, getting key baskets, you know, giving it to guys like Jason Tatum to create on his own, whether that's creating, making his own shot or getting other guys involved. You know, I think that that's something that the Celtics want to try to emphasize to Jason and Jalen Brown that, you know, hey, we're going to be a lot better as a team if you are creating shots for other guys, if you're making plays for other guys, because it's going to you know, force other teams to kind of adjust to that. And so I think, you know, having uh, an offensive team that has multiple guys that not only can take over games by themselves, but they can take over games by getting guys involved. And so I think you're seeing some good, solid defensive play. Obviously, the offense is not been great. I mean, you look at the points that they're scoring, it's not a lot. But I think that making the emphasis of being a good defensive team first, you know, I think really is going to help this team go a long way. And you saw Tatum, you know, again with the playmaker. You saw him seven assists on Wednesday night. Rob Williams, 16 points, 13 rebounds. Probably his best game of the season so far. Um, so I'd be curious to see how the Celtics do uh, tonight against the Bucks. Obviously, it's a challenge whenever you have to go against a guy like Giannis, who is, you know, one of the, if not the best player in the league at the moment. Um, so I'd be very curious how the Celtics defend him. You know, this is going to be the first game the Celtics have had against the Bucks since Brad Stevens was replaced. So I'm curious to see how Coach Udoka approaches defending Giannis. You know, what the Celtics do. Do they try to mix up different guys on him? Do they try to play or do they try to switch less? You know, I'm very curious to see how that goes for the Celtics tonight. Um, one of the guys that's really been impressing me so far this season um, has been Dennis Schroeder. Um, and obviously, you know, the story on him comes into the Celtics making, you know, about five, six million after uh, hoping to make about 20 million a year. Um, but he's been excellent. You know, in the in the 11 games he has played, he's averaged 14.5 points, 
which is third on the Celtics and is leading the team in assists with just under six. Um, I really think that he has given the Celtics an added element of an offensive player who can call his own number and make his own plays. You know, you've seen so many times already this season him just blow by guys and and go up and go to the cup for layups. He's one of those guys that, you know, really can seemingly do that anytime he wants, you know, get to the basket and lay it up so quickly. You know, honestly, reminds me a lot of Rajon Rondo, just the way that he was able to get to the get to the rim so quickly. Um, and obviously, not only is he getting to the rim and laying and getting layups, he's creating plays for other guys like Rob Williams. So I think, you know, having a player like him on the floor at almost all times as he's started five games, has come off the bench for six games, you know, really gives the Celtics another kind of person that can score the basketball. And the same, and same thing with Richardson. You know, he's had a couple of games where he's knocked down a lot of shots. You know, is only averaging eight points a game, but I think that him off the bench is giving you some added scoring that maybe you didn't have last year because I think that there were times last year where, you know, you had – Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum sitting, and it's like, who's going to score? Um, and I think that the Celtics have found a little bit of a rhythm with some of those guys. Um, obviously, Al Horford's been excellent. You know, he has really turned back the clock. He's almost averaging a double-double, um, 13 points and nine rebounds this season, um, and averaging just under two and a half blocks a game. So, you know, he has really played outstanding basketball, and the Celtics, I think, have found a little bit of uh, an a little bit of an identity the last couple of games. It really felt like through the early part of the season, they were struggling to kind of, kind of find their identity as a team to be like, okay, what is going to be the hallmark of this team? And I think that they've gotten back to being, okay, we're going to be a defense first team. Um, and so I think, you know, it will be interesting to see offensively how the Celtics play tonight, because obviously they've been without Jalen Brown the last or just the last game, they uh, he was hurt in the Dallas game. Uh, but it doesn't sound like the hamstring is going to be a huge problem. Um, as it sounds like it's an injury he's had before, but it's not, I guess, as serious as it's been before. So um, obviously will not be available tonight against the Bucks, um, but I think could be available in the next couple of games. But Jalen is leading the team in scoring and has done an excellent job, you know, just getting hot in games. You know, leads the team 25.6 points a game um, and is leading the Celtics in field goal percentage. Well, second, actually, I think, on the team in field goal percentage behind uh, Rob Williams, who's shooting 72% from the field. Um, you know, and we talked about this last week. I think one of the things that I'd like to see more of is the, the young guys and giving guys like Romeo Langford more minutes. And I think they... I definitely noticed how well he played against Toronto, made a couple of uh, corner threes, and has really come a long way with his shooting. Um, I really think that continue to give him minutes, and he can be another guy that can come off the bench and score. And I really think for the Celtics, it's finding guys that can perform off the bench when Jason and Jalen aren't on the floor. Um, And, you know, just giving you some more offense that you can rely on, you know, when there are guys in foul trouble or guys are off the floor. So I really think I want to continue to see that Aaron Neesmith has not been getting too many minutes. You know, that's been something else that I would like to see change. You know, he's only played about 10 minutes a game. 
and has only appeared in eight games. So, you know, be curious to see, you know, if that changes anything with Peyton Pritchard. You know, I think, unfortunately, he's not been seeing a lot of playing time because I think, you know, Schroeder obviously is playing a lot. Um, but obviously, if Schroeder's in the starting lineup, which he was on Wednesday, it gives a couple more minutes available to Pritchard and maybe some guys off the bench. So be curious to see how that changes over the next few weeks, you know, if it does. So uh, Celtics and Bucks tonight at 7.30. I'll take a look at the rest of the, or the Celtics schedule for the next week or so. You do have a couple of road games coming up, and then you got a big matchup against the Lakers next Friday. So the Celtics playing the Bucks at home tonight, and then, then they will be on the road. They will play two road, road games at Cleveland uh, tomorrow night and then Monday night. So the Celtics, um, unfortunately, do have a back-to-back after tonight's game against the Bucks. They will travel to Cleveland, play the Cavs tomorrow night, and then they will play them again on Monday, and then they will travel to Atlanta on Wednesday, and then they will play host to the Los Angeles Lakers uh, next Friday. And then they will also have home games following that, another back-to-back against Oklahoma City that following Saturday, and then they will play Houston, and then they will play Brooklyn the day before Thanksgiving. Um, So that will be a good group of kind of interesting games against teams that maybe aren't that good, teams that are really good. So it'll be curious to see how the Celtics are able to approach these next couple of games. And I think that, you know, you always want to play your best, but I think that it's going to be, you know, interesting to see how the approach changes for some of these games. Um, so I would imagine that the hope is that Jalen can uh, be available for that Lakers game. You know, I'm not sure if he makes the road trip when the Celtics go to Cleveland and to Atlanta. But I think, again, very curious to see how the Celtics play defensively against the Bucks and how they choose to attack Giannis. It is interesting. The Bucks will be, I think, still without Chris Middleton, um, who's been under the COVID protocol for the last few weeks. Uh, Brooke Lopez has also been battling a back injury, so I don't, I don't believe he'll be available. So it uh, should be an interesting game. Celtics and Bucks tonight, 7.30 game is on ESPN or NBC Sports. Boston, if you prefer watching the, uh, the local angle, I know I do. You know, love listening to Mike Orman and uh, Brian Scalabrini. Um, taking a look around the rest of the NBA, uh, Nikola Vucevic for the Bulls tested positive for COVID yesterday. Um, so he'll miss some time for the Bucks. Kelly Olynyk will miss some time with a knee injury for the Pistons. And then you've had a couple of scuffles uh, in some games this week. Obviously, you had the Nuggets in the heat with Jokic getting ejected and then suspended. And then you had another kind of tussle last night between Miles Turner and Rudy Gobert in the in the um, Jazz and Pacers game. So still really no update on the uh, Ben Simmons situation. I know that there's been a lot said over the last uh, 24 hours or whatever with um, some people feeling that uh, Ben Simmons is being forced to play by the 76ers. You know, I think it's just kind of a 
unfortunate situation that the I'm not really sure what the Sixers plan is because it's like you keep hearing these rumors and the Celtics were involved with some rumors earlier this week um, that, you know, the Sixers want, you know, you know, if this rumor was true, which may not have been, I mean, I know according to some Celtics sources, the report about the Celtics and the Sixers trading, you know, Jalen Brown for Ben Simmons wasn't true, but there was a report that the Sixers were asking for you know, way too much from the Celtics. And, you know, it's just, at the end of the day, I think the Sixers kind of need to be realistic about what Ben Simmons' actual value is, you know, and obviously is an elite defensive player. You know, we know that, but there are serious concerns about him as an offensive player, him as a shooter, him as a guy who's, you know, giving up open looks in game seven. And it's just like, Sure, Ben Simmons is a tremendous athlete, is a good basketball player, but you can't deny that he has some pretty big flaws. And I just think with the Sixers asking for these crazy, crazy packages, you're never going to be able to trade him. You know, and I just think they need to be realistic about this. And I know that obviously you want to get equal value, but at a certain point, you're asking for way too much. If you're asking the Celtics for Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Robert Williams, I mean, that's insane. No one, no one, no one in their right mind would say yes to that trade, you know, from, from a Celtics perspective. So, you know, I think that they just need to figure that out. And until they do, you know, I, I, you know, don't really foresee Ben Simmons playing any games. I'm not sure, you know, what the whole thinking of is that, oh, they're forcing him to play games. Well, I mean, he hasn't played. So I don't know. It's kind of a, situation that's just gotten totally out of hand that I think if the Sixers were smarter about it, they would have traded him a long time ago. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what goes on with that. But I think the longer that this goes on, it's not great for the Sixers. And I know that they are playing well, that they've had a good start to the season, but at a certain point, this is going to start being a distraction. I think that they kind of need to make the, make the trade sooner rather than later, just to kind of get past that. So that's probably it for NBA, talking about the Celtics in the association. Uh, we'll move on to talking a little bit about hockey, and we'll talk about the Bruins. And uh, definitely not a pretty game last night against the Oilers. Uh, Bruins blowing a third-period lead as the Oilers scored three times in the final period to beat the Bruins 5-3. to three. Um, You know, I would say that this was a game that I think definitely at the beginning of the game had a lot of uh, emotion involved as both, both the Bruins and the Oilers honored uh, the late Colby Cave, who played for both franchises, um, who had sadly passed away last year um, after emergency brain surgery. And I just want to say that that was really kind of a beautiful ceremony. And it just lets you know that I think the hockey community really does come together when things like that happen. And I know that there's been a lot said about the hockey community and hockey culture over the last few weeks, you know, with all this stuff going on with uh, Kyle Beach and whatnot. But it was one of those moments where it made you feel, you know, made you feel good as a hockey fan and as a sports fan that, you know, the sports community can come together, you know, tragedy. And I think, you know, you had a number of Bruins players that played with Colby in his time with the Bruins. And then obviously, uh, his time with the Oilers, plenty of guys on that team played with him. And, 
Um, just I think that the things that have been said about him, that he was a tremendous teammate and a tremendous person and just is always amazing to see the hockey community come together when, when things like that happen. And um, it is nice to know that, you know, both the Bruins and the Oilers, you know, supporting Emily Cave, Colby's uh, wife, you know, through this really challenging and difficult time. But that was definitely a beautiful moment to see before the game. Um, so, you know, really in this game, I thought that the Bruins were in a pretty good spot going into the third period. You know, you had a couple of big saves from Linus Olmark in the first couple periods. You know, the Bruins would get goals Edmonton answered very quickly. But I think, you know, it kind of just all unraveled in the third period and kind of the, the issues that have plagued the Bruins for maybe the last few years, you know, come up again, that, you know, the team oftentimes just will make too many errors in the defensive zone, and it's not really specifically on one player necessarily, but, you know, it just is, it's frustrating, because it's one of those things that the Bruins are able to get away with that in, against Ottawa on Tuesday. They made a lot of mistakes in their own zone, and honestly, in my opinion, they were lucky to come, they were lucky to come away with a win in that game. Because honestly, like what I said after the game, what I said to myself is like, okay, you're going to beat Ottawa, but you're not going to be able to beat Edmonton if you're playing this way. And for the most part of the first 40 minutes, the Bruins seemed to play some pretty solid hockey. Certainly had, you know, a breakdown on Zach Hyman's goal in the second period. But I thought that the Bruins really did a pretty solid job. But then the third period came. You had made too many errors. You know, Brandon Carlo pretty much just giving the puck to uh, Dreisaitl, who ties the game, and then you had Clifton that had a bad turnover. Uh, he really had an ugly game. He had a delay of game penalty, um, and then obviously the turnover that led to the go-ahead goal, and it's it's just frustrating because this is a Bruins team that really prides itself on defense and you know protecting third-period leads. They're usually one of those teams that they get a lead in the third period and they're able to shut things down, and it's just frustrating to see that, you know, you come up against a very good team that you know you can't make mistakes against, and they still happen. And it's just, it's it's frustrating. But I think at the same time, it is 11 games into the season. I think the Bruins are still trying to kind of find their footing in terms of their defense and their offense. But let me just tell you, it's just like, Whenever this team starts to struggle, it's almost always because of the same issues where too many turnovers in the defensive zone, guys aren't focused, guys aren't making the right plays, they're trying to make the hard plays when they should make the easy plays, and you have just an anemic offense outside of the first line that just can't really seem to put the puck in the net. And I know that they're, they're, you know some of their advanced numbers look good that, you know, okay, things should be able to even out at a certain point. And I think to a certain extent, I agree with that because I think this team is way too talented to not be scoring goals with some of the other guys other than the first line. But, you know, this, this can't continue if the Bruins want to, you know, be considered a top tier team in the Eastern conference that's trying to make a cup run. You know, you can't do it. We've seen countless times 
in the last couple of years that the Bruins cannot be a one-line team, you know, and it's even got to a point where the first line has been shut down in some playoff series and the Bruins just hurt, you know, can't do anything. You know, you saw that in the cup final series against St. Louis. You saw that in the series last year against the Islanders that the Bruins first line ends up getting shut down and the whole, the whole roster can't score. And it's just like, you're not going to get very far, you know? And I think it's the offense that really kind of concerns me that sure you had plenty of opportunities last night. And that's at least good that you're getting opportunities. You know, Felino hits a post, Pasternak somehow can't put the puck in the empty net and hits, you know, Koskinen's skate. It's just like you would, you would think that the kind of their luck turns around, but you know, they're really kind of struggling to find their offense without David Krejci. And I know that a lot of people are going to harp on this and be like, oh, well, their offense would be much better, you know, with Krejci, but I got news for you guys, David's not here, and he's not coming back. No matter what you want to say about, oh, well, he might be able to come back, he's not coming back. And I think at a certain point, there are fans that kind of have to realize that and have to be like, okay, we need to stop thinking about David Krejci and start thinking about guys who are going to kind of be, not the replacements, but maybe it is, you know, and it's, I, I have to say, you know, losing David is not the most ideal situation in the Bruins, I don't think, really have had the best backup plan, I think, because of maybe the poor drafting or poor free agent signings or whatever you want to say. Um, but I just think, you know, it's it's the offense that concerns me. It's really the the offensive play that, you know, if you're going to be a team that's going to be a Stanley Cup contender, you have to score goals from other areas other than your first line. And I know that this is not going to please a lot of Bruins fans. And this is something that I've said plenty of times before, but I really think the team needs to consider breaking up the first line. And I know that that's, you know, blasphemy around these parts because the trio of Marshan Bergeron and Pasternak are so good together. I mean, I think they're, they, they, they are the best line in hockey, but at the same time, you look at what this roster is doing right now they really not they're really not able to find much offense. I don't really know what could hurt with putting, you know, Pasternak on the second line, playing him with Taylor Hall and Charlie Coyle, you know, trying some things out. You know, it's I think at a certain point it's me just arguing with a brick wall because I know it's never going to happen. But I just wish that the, that the Patriots I just wish that the Bruins kind of would do stuff like that more often and I understand that there are certain people that don't like breaking up lines that perform really well, but it's like you look at what this team is right now. They're a one-line team, and wouldn't you try to create some lines that maybe are more dangerous by breaking up that top line? And I don't know. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a crazy thought at this point that you know it's not something they're ever going to do. But I don't know. Look at what they're look at look at what the results are right now. You know, you look at that top line is doing its job, you know, factored in all three of the goals last night. You know, you have a combined, you have a combined 37 points between the trio. Marchand's got 16, Bergeron 11, Pasternak 10. The next closest guy is Taylor Hall. You know, it's just like you need, you need more from some of these guys. You need more from Charlie Coyle. 
you need more from Jake DeBrusque. You need more from Eric Halla, Nick Foligno. Well, I know he's only played three games. You need more from Craig Smith. He's scoreless in eight games. And it's just like, again, you can't be expected to be a top-tier Stanley Cup contender if you're just getting production from one line. You know, it's just frustrating because it's like, it's the same issues that always come up for the Bruins. And it's just like, it, it almost like, it feels like it never changes. So, you know, hopefully they can try to get it together. But I have to say that Edmonton game was just so frustrating. And I also think that defensively, look, the pairings are what they are. And I understand the Bruins playing Derek Forbert, Derek Forbert with Charlie McAvoy in some games. Because I think in some games it makes sense to, you know. Charlie, I think, does well with kind of a stay-at-home big defenseman that, you know, can kind of hold his own in the defensive zone. I know that maybe that's not happening most of the time because Forbert obviously has made some mistakes. But I think you want to, you want to have Charlie play with an outstanding or with a not outstanding, but like you want to have him play with a stay-at-home defenseman who can kind of hold their own in the defensive zone so that he can take chances offensively, jump in on the rush, and things like that. And I understand that a lot of people want him playing with Matt Grizzlick, and honestly, I do too at certain points. You know, I think that the two of them work so well together, but I think when you're playing against teams that can kind of, I don't want to say out-physical you, but maybe that is the case, you would want a guy like Derek Forbert playing with Charlie McAvoy. Um, And I think it also goes back to the same idea with the Bruins' top line, that I think defensively, you don't want to stack your number one. You don't want to stack your defensemen so one pair is really good. And then the other two are just kind of, you don't know what you're going to get. Um, But I think definitely, you know, you're seeing that Connor Clifton, again, cannot be a guy that plays every game. Um, And I don't mean to harp on him, but it's just like him playing every night, he's always going to make some mistakes. And he did that last night, and it's just... It just goes to show you the Bruins don't really have a lot of right shot depth. And I mean, they don't, you know, you look at the three right shots that they have on this team. It's McAvoy, Carlo and Clifton. Everyone else is a left shot. And I just think I would like to see them play Jakob Zaboral or John Moore or one of those other guys, you know, more often because Clifton cannot be a guy that plays every game. I think that every once in a while, him coming into the lineup, actually is a good thing because it gives you some added energy. But sometimes that over-aggressiveness can just be, you know, an Achilles heel for him. And I think that in the most ideal situation, you want to have someone else playing that regular third pair, bring in Connor Clifton once every three or four games so he can kind of give you a jolt. But I just think you're seeing that he can't play every night. And the Bruins are kind of you know, up against it with having to play the same guys. I just would like to see some change up in the defensive pairs because clearly, you know, over the last couple of games, it's not really been working. You're seeing a lot of guys making a lot of mistakes in the defensive zone. And I think that really needs to, really needs to change. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what's, what's next for the Bruins as they try to, you know, find an offensive rhythm, um, it is a good it is good news that the Bruins are actually starting to play some games now that they're you know insane you know days off it just kind of I think thrown them off a little bit you know not to be like oh to cut them slack but it's like the schedule is ridiculous 
He had four days off between their game on October 30th against the Panthers and then November 4th against the Red Wings. And lo and behold, it does happen again. The Bruins have a week without games next week, which is just bizarre. I'm not sure what's going on with the NHL schedule, but I will say, you know, two important games uh, this weekend. Bruins got the Devils on the road tomorrow, and then they will come back home to play Montreal. Montreal obviously is off to a pretty terrible start, but you got a rival coming in, and they're going to play you hard. And speaking of playing hard, the New Jersey Devils are going to be a very tough out for the Bruins tomorrow afternoon. Afternoon games, it's just, it's always hit or miss with those games. And you got a Devils team that I think is really uh, very sneaky this year. You know, they're. 7-3-2, and two, they're off to a very good start. Lindy Ruff has them playing good hockey. They've improved a lot over the over the offseason. You know, Dougie Hamilton is in. He's playing really well. you got a really talented team there that I think the Bruins are going to have a hard time with. So it's going to be a challenge, but at least the Bruins will get days off. But it's just like, it's kind of maddening when you look at this schedule because the Bruins have two back-to-backs a week apart. you got the Devils, you got Montreal. And then next weekend, you got Philadelphia and you got Calgary. There's no reason why the Bruins can't play those games, you know, in the middle of the week. The Celtics aren't at the Garden for the majority of next week, so I don't know what's going on. You know, why the Bruins can't play that Calgary game on the 16th or the 17th or something, I don't know. The schedule is just totally out of control, and I think it's one of the reasons why the Bruins, I think, have been struggling to get going because you have all these off days. So be curious to see how they do this weekend. Pretty big games coming up for the Bruins at the Devils tomorrow afternoon. And then they will play the Canadians Sunday night. And then Bruins will be back in action the following weekend at Philadelphia and then at home against Calgary. So we'll take a look around the rest of the NHL. It's been a pretty exciting start to the season for some teams uh, the L.A. Kings have won seven straight games, so they are off to a pretty solid start. They were 1-5-1 and one in their first seven games, so they've rebounded. They won seven straight. They got a good young, good group of young players, but they still got that core with guys like Kopitar, Dowdy, and Jonathan Quick, who played excellent last night. Um, Troy Fukali uh, with the, um, the rookie goalie for the Capitals got his first NHL win last night, a two or was it yeah two nothing, um, making 21 saves in his NHL debut. Debut, so he gets the win. Uh, Troy Terry has been on a tear to start the season. He has a 13 game point streak. Um, it's now at 13 games after uh, three points last night. The Ducks have won six in a row. So the Southern California teams are playing pretty well to open the year. So that's a uh, Good stuff to see on both teams that, you know, have been kind of in kind of in the, the basement of the league the last couple of years. But uh, good stuff for them. The Avalanche with seven goals against the Canucks last night. They won seven to one. Um, the Canadians ending the Flames road winning streak. Another team, Calgary, it's off to a good start this season. Um, and then it was announced yesterday that Rick Nash will have his number retired by the Blue Jackets in a ceremony in March uh, when the Bruins actually visit Columbus. So a uh, nice little touch there as Rick had played for uh, both of those teams, played just 11 games with the Bruins 
in 2018 and retired after some concussion issues. But uh, that will certainly be a nice ceremony to see as Rick Nash, the you know biggest, most important player of Blue Jackets history and some time with the Bruins. So that will be a very fun to pay attention to when that comes around. So as we move on, talk about baseball. Obviously, there's not much baseball to talk about. The Atlanta Braves, you know, winning the World Series last week. Yeah, it was last week. You know, it's kind of like a blur. The last few weeks have been kind of all over the place for me. But uh, congrats to them winning the World Series. First World Series win since 1995 as they beat the Astros in Game 6, 7 to nothing. So talking about the Red Sox, you know, it's certainly going to be a very interesting offseason. We obviously got the news last Sunday that J.D. Martinez will opt in to his the final year of his contract. So he will be back for the Red Sox, which I think is great. You know, he's a guy that really has been excellent his entire time with the Red Sox. You know, he's really one of those free agent deals, one of those big free agent deals that has paid off, you know, and it's been exactly what you would expect. And it's like, oftentimes with the Red Sox and signing big deals, you know, how they've been before, that it's not always worked out. But J.D. Martinez has been you know, totally worth the investment his entire time here. You know, obviously had a tough season in 2020, but was really good this year. Was very solid in the playoffs. You know, just gives you such a comfort to have a guy like him in the lineup. And, you know, batting him anywhere in the lineup, fourth, fifth, sixth. They had him batting sixth in some playoff games this year, which is like, just goes to show you how deep the offense was this year. But I think it's great to see that he'll be back. I think it's really no negatives to that. You know, he's a guy that can be your DH and really be good for a guy that's going to, that can hit near 325, 30 home runs and close to a hundred RBIs. Um, just is just so consistent. It's pretty unbelievable how good he's been with the Red Sox. So good to see that he will be back. I think that does create a little clarity in terms of maybe guys that may come back, may not. I think it complicates things for Kyle Schwarber. I think they're bringing back Martinez. I don't really think that there's a spot for Schwarber, you know, unless they do bring him back with the idea that he plays the outfield. I think that's a possibility, you know, with Hunter Renfro most likely not coming back. The Red Sox could try to reconfigure the outfield move, uh, Verdugo over to center, Hernandez over to right, and then maybe have Schwarber play left field, but he's you know, more accustomed to playing the outfield than he is playing first base. Trust me, you don't want him playing first base the full year next year. So um, I think that it will be interesting to see how the Red Sox approach it. But I do think the Martinez signing kind of does make things a little more complicated for Schwarber to come back because I think, you know, if you're the Red Sox, you probably want Schwarber to DH or play the outfield. So curious to see how that shakes out. Um, there are also, you know, some thoughts in the infield, too. You know, Bogarts does have an opt-out after next season. You know, so could the Red Sox think about bringing in another shortstop, moving him to a different position in the infield? I'm not super wild about that. I think, you know, if you're going to make a big splash in the infield, I think you go after and sign a second baseman like a Marcus Simeon. I do think he might be, the Red Sox might be priced out on that because he hit or not priced out, I shouldn't say it like that, but I think the market for him 
is going to be ridiculous because he's a power-hitting second baseman who hit 45 home runs last year. And, you know, those power-hitting second basemen are very rare in Major League Baseball. So, you know, there could definitely be a lot of a lot of different a lot of different suitors for him. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the infield, I'd rather them keep Bogarts at short and, you know, look at an upgrade at second base. You know, if they don't believe that Christian Arroyo can be an everyday, you know, big time player. And I think the Red Sox could make a splash there. Um, and then in terms of the pitching, the Red Sox declined options on Eduardo Perez, not Eduardo Perez, <laughs> Martin Perez. Martin Perez and Garrett Richards, which, you know, honestly didn't really surprise me. Red Sox brought both of them in. Or actually, no, they brought Richards in on a one-year deal. I wasn't thinking he would return. Uh, Perez, they signed him to a two-year deal a couple years ago. Um, So he won't be back. So the Red Sox obviously will have a couple holes to fill in terms of the pitching um, and looking at the pitching staff. Um, And speaking of the pitching staff, Eduardo Rodriguez most likely will hit free agency. I think that he has until a certain date to accept um, the Red Sox qualifying offer. And I think if he accepts that, then he'll play for one year with the Red Sox. So it'll essentially be similar to a franchise tag in football. It's not the same thing, but I think it's kind of similar to that. Um, But I think it'd be interesting to see if he does test free agency. Um, I do think that he can end up getting a pretty big deal from a team like Detroit, who has been rumored to be interested in him. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what the Red Sox thought process is with him. I mean, certainly there definitely are, you know, factors that, you know, factored into his pitching this year, you know, after missing 2020, you know, I think got off to a poor start, but I really think he started to hit his stride down the stretch, um, at the end, tail end of the regular season. So, you know, I do think, though, that there are probably concerns to signing him to a long-term deal. You know, maybe it's injuries. Maybe it's not sure if he can still continue to be effective. I'm not really sure. But um, I do think the Red Sox will make an effort to bring him back. I think it's just if there is a team that comes out of the water with a crazy offer, the Red Sox may not want to match it. So I'll be curious to see what their thought process is uh, with him and the pitching staff. You know, undoubtedly, you got a pretty good one-two punch with Chris Sale and Nathan Navaldi, um, but it'll be interesting to see what the Red Sox do with the rest of their pitching staff, um, considering that, you know, you started the year with Richards and uh, Perez in the starting rotation, but obviously they won't be back. Nick, Nick Pavetta will be back, and then, you know, we'll see what happens with Rodriguez. I think if the Red Sox don't bring, bring back Rodriguez, there could be a possibility that they go out and try to make a splash with the starting rotation, you know, it is, it was very interesting to me that they had some people at a, can't remember what it was, if it was like a throwing session or something that uh, Justin Verlander put on. Um, I'd be very curious to see if they maybe take a flyer on him um, as he has missed some time with Tommy John surgery. I think he's a free agent this summer or this winter. So I'd be curious to see if maybe they think about bringing him in you know, certainly he probably will not be the same pitcher, but it certainly could uh, put the Red Sox rotation 
in a pretty good spot if they try to bring someone like him in. You know, I would think it would be wiser to look at someone like him rather than a pitcher like Scherzer, who's probably going to get a pretty big contract. Not that they shouldn't look at Scherzer. I do think that they should. Um, but I think it'll be kind of interesting to see what they do there. Um, in terms of looking at the rest of Major League Baseball, you know, not really a lot of news going on. Um, you have, you know, awards season that will come up, I think, very soon. You know, MVP awards, Rookie of the Year, things like that. So, you know, I wouldn't expect that any Red Sox players are going to be kind of in the running for that, but we'll definitely keep you updated on that. So before we move on, I just wanted to say a piece about Jerry Remy, Jerry Remy, who had passed away um, Saturday night on October 30th, I believe. Um, obviously, we didn't have a podcast last week, but I just felt it was made sense to kind of say some 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 things about Jerry and, you know, what he meant to the Red Sox organization. And, you know, it's just, it's just kind of amazing to consider, you know, when you think about Boston, you think how much we all love sports and how much it is, you know, so much a big part of our lives. And, you know, someone as kind of innocuous as a team broadcaster, you know, means so much to so many people that, you know, Jerry had a way of presenting the game in a way that it was so easy for anyone to be able to, you know, listen to him. People that were casual baseball fans, people that were hardcore baseball fans, or even people that were just complete novices and really hadn't watched much much baseball. There was a way that Jerry had that he was able to make the game interesting for everyone and, you know, mixed in humor with analysis, you know. You got you think of some of the the funniest moments in Red Sox history, you know Jerry and Don Orsillo. You know you think about the the pizza incident. I mean one of the one of the one of the funniest moments of television I've ever witnessed. And you know it just was so special to think about all the all the things that that he was able to do, all the things that he was able to you know teach people, and just was someone that meant so much to the organization the Red Sox family, and all those things. And I just will say, for me personally, you know, much like Tommy Heinsohn, I grew up listening to him. You know, I grew up loving sports and loving listening to Red Sox games. And, you know, I remember going to going to Red Sox games and my brother and I making signs for, for the Rem Dog. And it just was like, man, he just had such a, such a positive effect on so many different people. Um, and I think just me as a, uh, an aspiring journalist, you know, he meant a lot to me that he was definitely, you know, one of my earliest inspirations for sports broadcasting. You know, when I, back when I did, uh, you know, high school sports, you know, he was one of the earliest inspirations that I had that, you know, Hey, this is something that's really cool. You know, sports broadcasting, this is something that I'd love to get into. So, um, definitely your thoughts, my thoughts and my prayers go out to Jerry's family and just to thank you to Jerry for, you know, everything he meant to the Red Sox organization. Um, but we will, we, we will miss you, Jerry. So thanks. Thanks for everything. So I think we'll move on to some miscellaneous stuff, some stuff from all the way, 
stuff from just kind of all over the place. You got some soccer stuff. Uh, college basketball is back. College football is kind of in the, uh, the stretch run at the moment. So taking a look at the revolution, we'll talk about the revolution for a bit. Uh, the Revs obviously uh, finishing up the season with the Supporter Shield, the uh, award for the most points or the best record in Major League Soccer. Um, and then they also set a record for the most points uh, ever scored in a Major League Soccer season with 73. Revs did drop their old final game, a one nothing loss to Miami. Um, but it was really neat to see the celebration after the game. Revs lifting the shield and just getting to celebrate with uh, the fans and really kind of a you know, as part of the, as part of the fan base, a kind of a long suffering fan base, you know, the revolution have been oh so close to multiple MLS cup championships, but it just was nice to see, you know, the revolution get recognized for such a great season. And, you know, it's impossible to not think about where this team and this organization was in March of 2019, you know, the bottom of the league, bringing in an interim coach and just kind of the organization just seemed to be directionless. And, you know, you bring in Bruce Arena and everything changes, you know, you bring in guys that are exciting players and guys who want to be here for a period of time. You know, Gustavo Bo just signed a, con a contract extension. It'll keep him in New England for the next two years. Like, I think for the first time, you have players that really want to be here and really want to, you know, build a culture and, you know, build a culture of, success, you know, and something in New England is, you know, we know a lot about success, but I think, you know, kind of buying into this revolution team has been awesome. And I think that, you know, bringing in Bruce Arena, bringing in all these players, you know, I think without that, I don't even think the revolution tried to rebrand, you know, the announcement came that they, you know, will be rebranding a new logo that they'll be using next, starting next season. I'm not even sure if they do that. If they bring in Bruce Arena, it's just amazing to think about how much this team, this organization has gone through just a big change that, you know, they've kicked into the kick, kicked in the door of, you know, Boston sports teams and are like, hey, pay attention to us. And boy, a lot of people have been paying attention. Revolution had their highest uh, attendance total in their last game against uh, Miami, 31,000. And, you know, with the revolution putting together quite the, the, quite the season that they put together, it gives them an opportunity to have home games, you know, the, the rest of the, they're the entire playoffs. So hopefully the fans can come out in full force. It is a little unfortunate. The revolution will be um, off for quite a period as uh, there is an international break as we will actually talk about that in a moment with uh, team USA but because the revolution finished with such a great record, they, you know, get a, a buy. And so they will not be playing until Tuesday, November 30th. That will be their first playoff game um, against either New York city FC or Atlanta. And so that will be obviously a home game at Gillette stadium, seven thirty start time, major league soccer playoffs actually do not begin until Saturday, the 20th. Um, because of the um, Olympic break. So there will be a couple games next weekend in the Eastern Conference and the West. Philadelphia and New York will play Sporting. Philadelphia and New York will play 
next Saturday, and then Sporting Kansas City and Vancouver will play, and then New York City FC and Atlanta will play. That will be definitely a game that the Revolution pay attention to, and then Portland and Minnesota will play um, to round out the weekend. And then you'll also see Nashville against Orlando and then Seattle against Real Salt Lake. So those will be the games that will be kind of the the first round games. And the Revolution obviously will get a bye and then will host either New York City FC or Atlanta in the second round. So I think out of curiosity, taking a look at how the Revolution did against both of these teams, um, NYC FC, they've had some trouble with in recent years. So in my opinion, I would prefer to not have to play them um, because it's kind of become a bit of a rivalry, um, so to speak. And so I think it's a game that, you know, if the Revolution aren't are careful, you know, they could lose to a team like that. Um, as we look at the Revs and how they did against Atlanta, the Revolution were able to win both of their games against Atlanta this season. And then taking a look at how the Revolution did against NYCFC. Um, Revolution did beat them twice um, and then did then did lose to them. But all three of those games were close. All, all three of those games were, were one goal, one or two goal differences. The NYCFC was able to beat the Revolution in August. Revs beat them in June, and then also beat them in September. Um, so that will definitely be very interesting to see how they do against both of, against either one of those teams, you know, obviously depending on the team that wins. Um, but I think the break is going to be challenging. I think that that's definitely going to be something that's going to be a challenge, you know, that you have to go three weeks without playing a game. And can the Revolution stay in the right form, you know, can they stay at a point where they can be the very same dominant team that comes into the playoffs? You know, we've seen a lot of times in the playoffs in Major League Soccer, the best team doesn't always win. And, you know, we know that as as sports fans that, you know, doesn't always mean that it guarantees that you're going to go to a final or win a championship. And so I think, you know, it's at least something comforting that the revolution have been saying all season that their goal is to win a championship, that, you know, all this, you know, best record in the league supporter shield really doesn't mean a lot unless you win a championship. And I think that, you know, Bruce Arena, having been through so many MLS MLS seasons and won MLS championships that, you know, he knows firsthand what it's like to, you know, go through the battles of the playoffs and, you know, keep his teams focused. And I think, you know, that's going to be the biggest thing for this team is just staying focused. You know, obviously they have the talent to win. You know, Carlos Hill most likely wins MLS MVP. You have Adam Buxa and Gustavo Bo that had outstanding offensive seasons. And then you had Matt Turner, who was excellent. So I think, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how the revolution do once the playoffs begin. So we will obviously update you guys on the playoffs as we go further into this year, further into the playoffs, see who the Revolution will face in their first playoff game on Tuesday, November 30th. So that will be post-Thanksgiving. Post so I think keeping with the soccer, um, keeping with the soccer theme, 
uh, the U.S. men's national team will continue their uh, World Cup qualifying with two games in the next couple days. Revolu or, excuse me, Revolution. Uh, team USA will host Mexico tonight in World Cup qualifying, which is going to be a huge game. Um, as I think Team USA currently, in terms of the qualifying, Team USA is in second behind Mexico. Uh, Mexico with 14 points, U.S. with 11, as they are six games through their 14-game qualifying window, or whatever you want to say. Um, so Team USA will reach that halfway point with the game tonight against Mexico, and obviously it's a pretty important game. You know, I think that this could this could mean that Team USA could be in the driver's seat for a World Cup berth if they're able to win this game, that they could be in position to most definitely go to a World Cup. And I think, you know, always these games against Mexico obviously always mean something extra, you know, and I think, again, you know, as I talked about the revolution, it's focus. You got to stay focused. And I think that it's a huge game. You know, it's most likely the biggest game for Team USA in quite a while. Um, they do have another qualifying game against Jamaica next Tuesday, but clearly this is the game that a lot of the players and a lot of fans have kind of circled as, you know, really the biggest, most important game to date in the qualifying. Um, so I'm very curious to see how this game starts. Uh, Christian Pulisic will not be will not be starting, but will be coming off the bench, which I think is kind of an interesting decision. They will be playing in Cincinnati tonight. So it will be, you know, home game for the U.S. But, you know, I think that it's, just staying focused, making sure you get off on the right foot, making sure that you're defending and doing all the things necessary and, you know, capitalizing on your chances. So a uh, very big opportunity for Team USA to get, um, potentially get into first place in the uh, World Cup qualifying. So uh, all teams will play 14 games, and then that will determine which teams get through to the World Cup. The top three teams in qualifying will automatically go and then the team that finishes in fourth place will go to an intercontinental playoff, which they might have to be forced to play a game against another country. So Team USA really hoping they can uh, stay in that top three. Uh, they are currently in second place right now, three points behind Mexico, but a win tonight would tie them up with Mexico and possibly give them um, a tiebreaker for uh, first place. So that game is at 9 o'clock tonight on ESPN2. If you want to tune in, so we will move on. Talk a little bit about men's college basketball. Season got underway on Tuesday. There were some games, uh, Duke against Kentucky. Uh, the Champions Classic is always something fun to watch with some elite teams going at it. Kansas beat Michigan State and then Duke with the win over Kentucky. So both of those teams, or three of those teams, in the top ten. Kansas third, Duke ninth, Kentucky tenth. Um, and then Michigan State, I think, is just outside the top 25. Um, so the top 25 to open this season, Gonzaga, UCLA, Kansas, Villanova, and Texas in the top 25. And then defending champion Baylor is also in the top 10 at number 8. So certainly will be an interesting season. So 
the season just beginning, you're not going to see a lot of big-time games. Um, but certainly once Thanksgiving comes around, you'll see the Invitationals, and then maybe you'll start to see some kind of big matchups. But at the moment, it's a lot of the top teams playing teams that they should get easy wins against. So um, it's not real. I mean, we shouldn't say it like that, because if you are a big college basketball fan, it is worth paying attention to. But I think if you're kind of a casual fan like me, it's not really worth you know, watching these games unless you have a favorite team like a Kansas, like a Duke, like a Michigan State, any of those. It's always worth following because um, college basketball is always a, a fun time of year at certain points. You know, the, the, the tournaments around Thanksgiving are always fun. You know, conference play is always fun to watch. And then obviously the big tournaments, the conference tournaments, and then March Madness. So uh, looking forward to college basketball this season. So to close out, we'll talk a little bit about college football. Um, the second week of the playoff rankings came out on Tuesday. Not much of a surprise here. There were some teams that moved up thanks to Michigan State's loss to um, to Purdue last weekend. So Michigan State fell from third to seventh. So currently the top four, Georgia, Alabama, Oregon, and Ohio State. And then Cincinnati and Michigan just outside the top four at five and six. And it's definitely created some issues with some people that Michigan is currently ranked higher than Michigan State. It's very surprising considering that Michigan State beat them a couple weeks ago. So that's been kind of interesting. And then you have Oklahoma at eighth, Notre Dame at ninth, and then Oklahoma State at 10th. Um, teams that were dropped from the rankings were Mississippi State, Kentucky, Minnesota and Fresno State is all three of those teams lost. Um, you have Purdue that is now back in the top 25 thanks to their win over Michigan State. Um, you had Wake Forest and Michigan State go down. Both top 10 teams lost last weekend. Um, there were, and then taking a look at some games this weekend, there was a game last night. 21st ranked Pittsburgh beat UNC in overtime. UNC was coming off their big upset win against Wake Forest. But Kenny Pickett and, Pin and Pittsburgh get, get the win, 30-23, to 23, as Pickett is one of the uh, Heisman hopefuls at the moment. So looking at the slate of games this weekend, there are only, I think, one or two games between ranked opponents, but some games are going to be worth paying attention to. Sixth-ranked Michigan travels to Penn State at noon on ABC, so that will definitely be worth watching. The Big Ten has been pretty interesting this year. Um, you know, Penn State is certainly down after some uh, some bad losses, but certainly they would like nothing more than to uh, spoil Michigan's season as they are ranked number six. Um, one of the big games this weekend is Oklahoma against Baylor, eighth-ranked Oklahoma, 13th-ranked Baylor. That game is at noon on Fox, so that's one of the ranked games this weekend. I think, actually, it might be the only one. Uh, Mississippi State against Auburn might be worth watching with the SEC. Always some good games there. 18th ranked Wisconsin plays Northwestern. And that game could be pretty interesting for Big Ten reasons. And then you also have Purdue traveling to Ohio State. That's the other game between ranked teams as Purdue is now 19th, Ohio State 4th in that final uh, playoff spot at the moment. Texas A&M 11th ranked will play 15th ranked. Old Miss, I may have been confusing this week with a previous week, but um, you have three top ranked, or you have three or four 
excuse me, I don't know what's going on with me this week. <laughs> so you have four games between ranked opponents, Texas A&M 11th, 15th ranked Ole Miss, and then 16th ranked NC State will play 12th ranked Wake Forest coming off that upset loss. Um, so some interesting games this week. I'd be curious to see if the uh, rankings change. I mean, probably won't change at the top as Georgia and Alabama both have pretty easy opponents. So I think that probably that probably does it for me this week. And it's been it's been a long episode as we were uh, not together last week. Um, I do apologize. I had some issues with uh, my microphone this week, but uh, so that's why the audio sounds a little bit different. But hopefully, it's not a big problem. Um, as always, you can listen to Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast on Apple Music. You can leave uh, or you can subscribe. You can like. You can comment. Uh, do all those things that you do on social media. Uh, you can follow us on Spotify as well, or listen to us on Spotify, follow, listen, whatever whatever you have to do. Um, and you can follow the Facebook page on Facebook, and you can follow the Twitter page as well. So uh, everyone have a good rest of your Friday, have a good weekend, and we will talk to you next week.